this morning, I thought it'd be kind of fun to start with a little game that I have called, Is That a Bible Verse? There's a lot of popular Christian phrases and sayings out there that some believe may be a Bible verse, and so I'm going to show you a, a, a phrase on the screen. And raise your hand if you think this is a Bible verse or not. If you think it's a Bible verse, raise your hand. The first one is, the Lord works in mysterious ways. The Lord works in mysterious ways. Is that a Bible verse? Okay. I'm actually here to tell you that's actually not a Bible verse. It's actually kind of a truish statement. It's based on some Bible verses. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 reminds us that God's ways are not our ways, but that exact phrase actually isn't in the Bible. Well, here's another one. Be in the world, but not of the world. Be in the world and not of the world. Is that a Bible verse? It's close. You're right. It is very close to being a Bible verse. It may surprise you. It sounds like it should come from the Sermon on the Mount. It sounds like it should come from somewhere that Jesus said it, but actually it's a amalgamation of different things from John 15, 19, 17, 14 through 15, and Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If you take all those verses together, it actually makes it sound like that verse, but it's not, that phrase is not in the Bible. How about this one? God will not give you more than you can handle. How many of you have ever heard that phrase before? God will not give you more than you can handle. Is that a Bible verse? It's actually not a Bible verse. You're right. It actually is probably someone trying to sum up 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And they probably have a well-meaning intention, but actually that's not what 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says. What Paul is talking about, what other people in the Scripture will say is that there will be things that we actually can't handle, but that God can. No matter what our circumstances is, what, how unbearable it may be, God can still handle it, and that's the point of that verse. How about this last one? Cleanliness is next to godliness. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Is that a Bible verse? How many of you wish it was a Bible verse? How many of you have said it hoping that it would trick your kids, I mean, convince your kids to take a bath? Well, it may surprise you, but I actually think this phrase, though it may not be a Bible verse, if I reworded it slightly, I think it's actually a very true theological statement. Because in Christian theology, we speak of an important part of spiritual formation as the cleansing of our sinful old selves. This is a change or transformation in a person's behavior post-encountering and having a relationship with Jesus. Because the hope is that they grow and become more into the image and likeness of Jesus, meaning that they become more like a godly individual. And so in a way, this folk saying is actually more true if I tweaked it to say cleanliness is nearer to godliness. Cleanliness is is on the way to godliness. In my opinion, the attention of Christian teaching and formation has shifted to an overemphasis of one's admittance into the people of God and away from one's follow-through to become a more godly, holy person. 
As a church, broadly, we have streamlined a means of sharing the gospel, understanding apologetic arguments to defend Christianity. We've even walked alongside people to do the conversion process and even gotten a few to the tubs of baptism. But we have a tendency, at least in the Baptist tradition, to stop there. We believe we have all the ingredients we need for godliness, conversion, repentance, and salvation, but I'm here to tell you that I think we're missing something, namely holiness. In fact, I believe there is more to being a Christian after you've come to faith and being saved, and it's known as the process of sanctification. Perhaps you've heard that word. We don't talk a lot about sanctification in the Baptist world. Perhaps it sounds too much like a Catholic or Lutheran word, so we just try to avoid it. At least in my Baptist church growing up, we didn't talk about it that much. And it's not their fault. They likely didn't know how to talk about it, even though they probably unknowingly believed it. I didn't really hear about this terminology until I got much older and I was in college. Because I think Baptists, we have a difficulty expressing what takes place after you've been saved. We have a hard time offering answers for what a Christian is supposed to do after they've been saved and they've been baptized. But the good news is that the Bible and Christian tradition has an answer for us. And it's known by the technical term of sanctification. A process of allowing the Holy Spirit to set us apart, to be holy as God is holy, to remove our sinful tendencies and itches and replace them with desires and wants to do the things that please God, to cleanse us, to get us closer to godliness. And this morning's image of the church as the bride of Christ affords us a prime opportunity to talk about the importance of sanctification in the life of the church. The traditional imagery of a a bride wearing a white dress is commonly understood as a symbol of purity. Brides are aiming to be immaculate, ready to walk down the aisle and be joined to her future husband at the altar. And this imagery, in a way, is used throughout the Bible to capture what the people of God should be striving to be. We are to be changed and transformed into an immaculate bride ready to spend eternity with our bridegroom, Jesus. And sanctification is the means to that end. It doesn't begin in the future, in the new heaven and the new earth, because it actually starts in this lifetime. We do a disservice to ourselves and others if we leave the latter half of the Christian journey undefined. And so we're called to become more holy. As a church global, but as a church local, we are called to move further and further away from our sinful life and closer and closer to God's holiness. Because picture this, we are the bride of Christ. You've probably only heard snippets of Ephesians chapter 5 at weddings. Paul's brief analogy of the church as Christ's bride falls in the middle of his discussion about marriage and the household. He parallels human matrimony mysteriously with the relationship between Christ and his church. And beginning with both spouses, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he shifts briefly to speaking to wives, and then he transitions to husbands. I want to pick up with Paul's opening comments to husbands. And before husbands get too anxious this morning, or those of us who are not husbands tune out, I want to rest assure all of you that this text is actually for all of us. This text is not reserved for sermons for just on Father's Day. In actuality, what Paul is saying here is that this metaphor, though admittedly not 100% perfect, 
helps us to understand what the work God is doing right now to make us his church sanctified and holy. And so Paul begins with the gospel. It's probably a good place to start. And in a nutshell, he summarizes the good news concerning Jesus and relates it to the husband and wife relations. He tells husbands to imitate the self-sacrifice Christ demonstrated in their own, in their own relationship with their wives. Paul says Christ loved the church so much he was willing to give himself up for her. And Christ's willingness to suffer and die for the sake of another is an exemplary kind of love and devotion that all Christian husbands must embody in their marriages. Sermon to husbands, over. Because here's the interesting part. The motivation behind Christ's self-sacrifice. Why did Jesus give himself up for the church? Paul doesn't say in this passage so the church could have eternal life. Paul doesn't say in this passage so that the church could go to heaven. And while those two statements are true, he doesn't say that's why Christ gave himself up. And this usually gets overshadowed when we talk about Good Friday and Easter. Paul says Christ sacrificed himself to prepare a people for himself. Jesus died and rose again to save us from our sin. But Jesus also died and rose again to help us to no longer sin. The good news of the gospel is that the guilt of sin has been vanquished, but also the power of sin over human lives has been neutralized. Friends, my brothers and sisters who profess a faith in Jesus Christ and believe in the power of Christ's blood shed for you, can you believe and claim that truth of this morning? We are set free from the guilt of sin, and we celebrate and praise God for that reality. But Jesus has also set us free from the power of sin in our lives when we profess faith in him. Don't neuter the gospel to just riveting our guilt problem. Jesus died for humanity so that we may experience a new kind of living that is more akin to how God originally created us, namely in his image and likeness. I think we fixate almost to a fault on the relief Christians have from our guilt of sin, but we forget that Christ has released us from sins and control and power as well. We forget that Christ has released us, and this was liberating for me when I heard this, that I'm not just saved, but I'm set free. And it still remains something that I'm continually reminding myself each and every day, Jesus has broken the shackles of sin in our lives, not just the memory of them. And since we are no longer under the regime of sin, Jesus now is wanting to sanctify us. He is wanting to help us and to teach us and to show us how it means to live now that sin is no longer calling the shots. This allows Jesus to set us apart, which is what holiness literally means. And like a bachelorette that singled out to be a bride for the sake of union with a bachelor, Jesus is wanting to make his bride for the sake of experiencing a personal relationship with him. To be made into Christ's bride, I believe, has two facets, a cleansing and a presentation. Jesus had to give up his life, shed his blood, in order to purify his church for the satisfactory presentation unto himself. And so perhaps the better way to understand sanctification is actually understanding it as a bride-ification. The actions Christ is taking to prepare a worthy bride for presentation to himself. And the first thing Christ has to do to bridify his church is to cleanse her by the washing of water with the word. 
Initially, we hear washing of water and our minds jump to Christian baptism. Some commentators argue that is what Paul has in the back of his mind, while other Bible scholars think perhaps Paul has a ceremonial bath undertaken by Jewish women before their weddings. For our sake this morning, to best understand Paul, I'm going to set aside the husband and wife imagery for just one moment and come back to it. In Jerusalem, you probably knew that there is a temple where people would bring animals, commonly sheep, to the priests to be sacrificed. People would travel from all over the lands and bring their sacrifice in tow to make a sacrifice to God. However, inevitably, these sacrificial lambs arrived at Jerusalem matted with dirt and dust from the journey to the city. It was rightfully considered disgraceful and undesirable to present an unsanitary sacrifice to God. And so the sheep needed to be cleansed before being sacrificed. The lambs entered through a special sheep gate and were taken directly to a designated pool known as the sheep pool. At this pool, they were thoroughly scrubbed to remove the dust and dirt from their coats. And when they dried in the desert sun, they sparkled like fresh snow. These lambs without blemish were then now clean and ready for sacrifice. Then and only then was a lamb ready for at, to be at the temple. Like a sacrificial lambs, the members of the church were unclean and impure. We were marred and corrupted with sin, even still after being saved. And while we want to offer ourselves to God, especially after experiencing his grace, we're still dirty. Namely, our desires, our inclinations, our impulses still pull us to sin. And God recognized this reality. God knew we were incapable of cleaning ourselves, much like sheep are powerless to wash themselves. Even after our conversion, our bent towards sin inhibits us from properly bathing ourselves. Even if we could find a pool, and scrub as best as we could, use soap and body wash, and submerge ourselves multiple times, the end result is that still sin would linger on us like an unremovable stain. We couldn't clean ourselves to be presentable to God. And so God had to do the unthinkable. God himself, Jesus Christ, was willing to clean us. Jesus beckoned us into his pool, and once we got in, he gets in the pool with us to do the dirty work we are incapable of doing. Willing to risk contamination with the worldly dust we have accumulated, Jesus loves his bride too much to not leave her in that perpetual state of uncleanliness and dirtiness. Jesus does not overlook the church's sin. Instead, he has pledged himself to the church to make her holy and without blemish. Christ is willing to get up and close and personal with our own muck and grime, to wash us clean. If we get into God's pool, he will do the scrubbing. God will cleanse us of our thoughts, words, and deeds, and attitudes which are out of character with his will. This is what happens when we get in Jesus' bathtub. Because here's a popular Christian myth that God loves you just the way you are. However, the truth is that God loves you too much to leave you there. You need to be made new with a new heart and mind that no longer by default chooses sin. And God has proved that. The prophet Jeremiah foretold of this reality that he will put the law within them and he will write it on their hearts before conversion. 
We recognize that our life of sin is lacking something. While we can't quite put our finger on it, we know that living in sin is not the abundant life filled with joy and satisfaction. We want a change or transformation that only God can give us, and he freely does because God loves us too much to not leave us wallowing in our deprived state. And when we commit to being in a personal relationship with Jesus at conversion and professed in Christian baptism, we are inviting God to remake us and implant in us a heart and mind that is holy like his. And just like it takes time, energy, and preparation for a bride to be ready for her big day, the same can be said for Christ's bride. Except the kind of bride Jesus is preparing doesn't need to go dress shopping because Jesus has already picked out the wardrobe and it's the same exact thing he's wearing, which is his holiness. The kind of bride Jesus is preparing doesn't need to be anxious and stress about her hair and her makeup or any external perfection because Jesus is not looking for that. He is looking for an inward hunger for holiness. The bride Jesus is preparing doesn't need to peruse Pinterest for wedding ideas or consult a wedding planner or anything else other than the bridegroom to know how to become a suitable bride. Jesus has a process of preparation planned out. It's laid it out. He's paid for it already, and that's to sanctify us, to bridify us, and preparations for the marriage between us and him. Sanctification is like an iceberg. Being relieved from our guilt of sin should just be the tip of that iceberg. We should want and invite the light of Jesus to shine upon our sin nature and gradually melt it away. And little by little, we discover that there is probably more to our sin nature than we first believed. Because the vast majority of icebergs are almost 90% underwater, unseen above the surface by the naked eye. As the sun shines on the iceberg, the exposed part melts, moving the lower parts upwards. And in the same way, we are usually aware of only a small part of our sinfulness. These are obvious evidences of sin in our lives that bring us to the cross in the first place. However, as we let the light of Jesus work in our lives, changing us in areas we know about. We become unaware and aware now of new areas needing God's light to touch that are deep below the waves. Because salvation is just the tip of the iceberg. Sanctification is the rest of it. We need Jesus to get his hands dirty and washing off the muck of sin from our souls. Jesus is ready, shampoo and wash rag in hand, to clean and polish us. However, it is up to us if we'll let him. Because we have a part to play. We participate in this sanctification process. We can either inhibit or hinder the rays of God's light from melting our icy sinfulness. Because here's the unspoken truth about Christian spiritual formation. Holy living does not automatically happen even after you've been saved. I hate to break it to you. It's not a perk of being a Christian. It's a purpose for living like a Christian. We have to intentionally get into the pool to be cleaned, to engage with the means Christ uses to renew us and be a part of the process of melting the iceberg and being re-sculpted back into God's image and likeness. Salvation gets you to the doorway of holiness, but it doesn't force you through it. Living a life of obedience to God, free from the clings of sin, and joylessly learning and doing the will of God has already been paid for. It lays ready to be taken. However, the struggle for most people is a faith to actually possess it. 
God uses a variety of means to scrub Christians clean in this lifetime. Paul mentions one of them, the chief one, which is the word of God. God's word has cleansing power that Mr. Clean's magic erasers wishes it had. Could it be that the reason so few people live a holy life today is because so few people are irregularly bathing in God's word? If you want to grow and become more holy, tap into the outlets the Holy Spirit has provided of receiving the word, whether that's your own personal intake of scripture, whether you're reading it or taking it in on a podcast or a video or somewhere else, or there's things offered at our church that you could tap into, whether it's Sunday school, Awana for children, our weekly Bible study, preaching on Sunday mornings, saturate yourself in the word and let it expunge you of your old sin nature. And that is just one of the means Christ uses to bridify his church. The second thing is Christ has to bridify his church is to present the church to himself in splendor. The sanctifying, cleansing, and preparing for all is all in service of gearing up for this big reveal of the bride. While Jesus is busy making the church holy, Jesus is also patiently awaiting for the process to be completed. And only Jesus could successfully multitask like this. In the future, John has a vision, and he is privy to a wedding banquet of the Lamb of God at the end of time. All the residents in glory have packed into the chapel to witness the fateful moment when the saints enter in to walk down the aisle to be with the bridegroom. And a great multitude cries out like the roar of a mighty water, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It has granted her to clothe herself with fine linens, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. In the future, the church will be presented to the bridegroom. This wedding date is known only to God, but it's on his calendar. Will we be ready? Will we let Jesus prepare us for this moment? We shouldn't wait until the day of the Lamb's wedding to get all our affairs in order. We need to be preparing ourselves even now and start living holy lives as if the wedding has already happened. Because Paul doesn't seem to isolate our presentation to Jesus to just a future wedding event. In fact, Paul seems to suggest that Jesus wants to present us to himself not only then, but now. Jesus wants to discover us holy and blameless, not only at the end of time, but also each and every day. Being Christ's bride is being something that is both already and not yet. Paul would say this in his letter to the church in Rome, chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In a way, we come down the aisle and arrive at the altar with Jesus every day. Not just someday in the future kingdom of God, but every day as we live out being the kingdom of God when we go to work, when we harvest our crops, go to school, watch our kids play ball, share a meal with our families, interact with social media, watch the Cornhuskers on TV or the Chiefs later today. Like an engaged bride, eager to shower Facebook feeds and personal conversations about her engagement and her daydreaming of being in marital bliss, the members of the Church of Christ similarly ought to express in their behavior and actions their betrothal to Christ, but also the readiness for that day when they're finally reunited with him. 
Can we start acting like the bride of Christ even if we haven't quite tied the knot yet? I read once about a woman who was visiting a small town. She was having tea in the after, late afternoon when she was aware of an unbelievably pleasant scent filling the air. She asked the waiter at the cafe for the source of the scent and was told that it came from people passing by. He explained to her that they were working in a perfume factory down the street and they were on their way home. And when they left the factory, they carried with them the fragrance that had permeated their clothing during their day's work. We should be a people who allow ourselves to be so permeated with the knowledge of Christ and the sweetness of his presence that people cannot but get a whiff of Jesus whenever they get into close proximity with us. The holiness we are striving to be should be palpable by others when they come into contact with us. Can we be a church that is stinky? Not with the foul odors of hatred and discourse and foolishness that is found in the world, but with the holiness of God. When we leave our times of gathering together, whether it's on morning like this or times during the week, others should notice our efforts towards becoming more holy like God. If you pursue holiness, I think you'll discover that it seeps into the other areas of your life, like in your relationships with your spouse and your kids and your classmates and your students, your coworkers, your boss, your friends, and even your enemies. Cleanliness is nearer to godliness. Not the ridding of dirt behind your ears, but the dirt lingering in your hearts. Cleanliness that leaves a residue of holiness on our lives is how we are to start to live the abundant life God has in store for each and every one of us. Cleanliness from our bent towards sin gets us closer and closer to looking and acting like the one whose image and likeness we bear. Can you imagine a church that is populated by people who believe holiness wasn't an, wasn't an exception, but it was the norm. Because picture this. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, that he might present the church to himself holy and without blemish. So be the bride of Christ.